during this exchange that the president had uh, with a group of lawmakers meeting with him over at the White House. But remember, this was behind closed doors. This was, this was not on the White House schedule. Uh, the president said, why are we having all these people from, and I apologize for using this word here, but this is a, a quote from the president. Why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here? He said these hate-filled things, and he said them repeatedly. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Is it racist? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can you take it any other way? My thought that we might get a bipartisan agreement approved by the White House died yesterday. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the vulgar racist Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And what else can you say about a man who yesterday told lawmakers that he doesn't want more immigrants from shithole countries and identifies those countries as the ones with dark-skinned people like Haiti? He says he wants more immigrants from Norway. Norway is a small nation distinguished by the extreme whiteness of its population and their lack of desire to move to the United States. He couldn't have said any more clearly that he wants white people in this country and black and brown people out. Archie Bunker is now president of the United States. And it's not like this was an isolated outburst of some kind. Just last month, in a White House meeting, the New York Times reported that Donald Trump described Nigerian immigrants as not wanting to go back to their huts and Haitians as all having AIDS. And that came on the heels of dozens of other bigoted comments, from his defense of neo-Nazi demonstrators in Charlottesville to his birther lies about Barack Obama. At least we're now clear on the fact. The president of the United States is a stone racist. But what do we do about that extraordinary fact beyond proclaiming it to be true, as the news anchors were all doing yesterday? Monday is Martin Luther King Day, and I think the decent human beings in this country need to recognize that a nation led by Donald Trump is a nation in a condition of moral crisis. It's time for some bigger gestures. I'd love to see members of Congress standing up and walking out on the president, holding hands and singing civil rights songs, and sitting down on the floor of the Oval Office when they happen to get invited in. It's time to march, to be civilly disobedient, to get arrested, to strike. We know what Trump is. It's time to show him what we are. On today's show, Donald Trump's authoritarian personality. I'll be back to discuss the president who would be a dictator with Brian Class right after this break. Joining me in the studio today is Brian Class. He's the author of a new book called The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy. He's a fellow in comparative politics at the London School of Economics, the LSE, and he focuses on authoritarianism and democracy. Brian, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. So you've studied dictators around the world, so it's natural to compare Donald Trump. And I think you say at the outset of the book, well, Donald Trump isn't a despot, classic despot like Mao or Stalin or Castro, but he's sort of on the despot spectrum. What is he? How does he compare? What's the difference between Donald Trump and a real despot? The difference is the system that he lives in, basically. I mean, you know, so 
you have two characteristics that determine how authoritarian a country becomes. One is the person who's in power, and the other is how much latitude they're given to sort of you know, embrace their authoritarian impulses and instincts. I think it's undeniable that Donald Trump has authoritarian personality and an authoritarian uh, instinct for power. He hates being criticized. But there is a more robust democratic system in the United States. I think if, he, if we were in Turkey and Donald Trump were in power for 10 years, I think he would become a despot. The reason I say he's not is because I've seen some really terrible things around the world in genuinely authoritarian countries. And to try to conflate the United States with that is, I think, alarmist. That being said, it would be foolish foolish of us to not take seriously the warning signs of how Trump's authoritarian impulses will corrode our democracy over the long term. So you use this term authoritarian personality, uh, which I think is exactly right. But what, what is an authoritarian personality and where else do you see this authoritarian personality around the world today? So the authoritarian personality, I mean, there's a few aspects that come up with Trump. One is how he has a cult of personality around him, right? So he'll, he'll lie in any way to try to make himself seem good, right? He distorts and cherry picks poll numbers, says any negative poll numbers are fake news, uh, lied about the inauguration. And these are what I, tr- I call in the book the little man lies, the ones where his ego is driving him to try to cultivate this cult of personality as dictators around the world always do. I've got the biggest button. Exactly. This is a perfect example of it, right? So, uh, and, and I think this is something that is integral to him. He, he also has an authoritarian personality in the sense that he may not be ideologically committed to authoritarianism, but he has an absolute disdain and recklessness for anyone to, to, to attack anyone who criticizes him. So anything that stands up to him is wrong and needs to be combated. And I think that's where you have these constant attacks on the press, the constant, uh, you know, sort of using Hillary Clinton as a foil against him. This is very common in a place like Turkey, right? So you have President Erdogan constantly talking about his opponents out to get him, the deep state out to get him, the witch hunt of the state, right? And and so I think that there's this personality trait that is inherent to Donald Trump, that's coupled with the actual authoritarian behavior, right? So this isn't just a personality trait. He's also, in addition to attacking the press, running the country like a family business with his ethics violations. He's got divide and rule tactics. He scapegoats minorities constantly, blaming Mexicans and Muslims and migrants for all of his administration's failures. Well, most recently, and just to take a pause on it, I mean, shithole countries following on the heels of this comment over the holidays, which got a little buried uh, about... Nigerians live in huts and Haitians all have AIDS. I mean, he sounds like, you know, a drunk idiot, drunk racist idiot in a bar. So I think that's the charitable interpretation of it. I think that he is certainly racist. And and the divide and rule chapter in the book chronicles his decades and decades of racism. This is a feature of Trump. It's not a bug. It's not like a mistake that he accidentally said this. It's just who he is. But I think we can't just dismiss it as sort of an idiotic comment. Right. It's a strategy. And the strategy is to turn Americans against each other so they don't turn against the president. Now, I think that's a backfiring strategy because a lot of people are unifying against Trump. But among the people who love Trump, this wasn't something where they think, oh, that's too bad that he said that, but we'll defend him anyway. They are cheering this comment. And there's a segment of America's population that is what I call in the book authoritarian voters. And these are also often people who are white nationalists. And they are celebrating Trump. I mean, you see this after Charlottesville. You see it after these comments. And they've been brought out of the woodwork. Now, the problem is, once that's been mainstreamed by the Trump administration, does it just go away in 2020? Of course not. 
right? I mean, th- this is why I think the people who have the more optimistic interpretation of Trump as this sort of idiotic aberration are downplaying the fact that there are tens of millions of people who are excited about Trump because of these things, not in spite of them. And that's where, you know, there used to be this pact between Republicans and Democrats that you did not cater to these voters, right? So when John McCain was asked and or was, you know, in a rally in 2008 and somebody said, Obama's, you know, a Muslim born in Kenya, he took the mic and shut that person yeah. down and said, no, he's not, right? Trump reveled in the law corrupt chance. And so I think that the key difference here is he's broken this unwritten rule that we don't embrace these people in our society who do not care at all about democracy, who are racist. And instead, he said, you know what, I'm going to be your champion. And I'll do it maybe with some winks and nudges. And now, you know, even some more open, uh, you know, I think dog whistles have been replaced by bullhorns long ago. But it's it's clear that this is something where it's part of the strategy, not just inadvertent bumbling from a guy at the bar. Yeah, no, it's not dog whistles. It's actually feeding meat to the dogs. Yes. But let me ask you first a historical question about America and then a comparative question about the rest of the world today. Have we had an authoritarian personality as president before or is Trump the first in your in your assessment? I think the closest authoritarian populist would have been somebody like Andrew Jackson. But I mean, I often talk about in modern American history because when, you know, the, the shithole comment, for example, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a terrible one. But we have to remember that you know, slavery was legal in this country uh, in the 1860s. So we've had presidents who are far more racist than Trump. Um, well, you've had a system that yes. was far more racist and abusive. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the people running it had that personality. And part of the great paradox of the American founding yes. is you had these slaveholders who were also great liberal thinkers. I agree. So I agree with this completely. I was talking about the racism aspects, right? So I, I I think that we the racism aspects, there are parallels in, mod, in earlier American history because we had a lot of racist yeah. presidents. In terms of authoritarian personalities, I think Andrew Jackson's the closest. I, don't, I still think he had an immense amount of respect for the Constitution and procedures. And uh, the other person I talk about in the book is sort of McCarthyism and Huey Long, people who were in the political system that had this authoritarian personality but did not end up ascending to the presidency. I, I think, you know, this is the first test case in modern global history of a effective democracy being challenged by a genuinely authoritarian personality. It's never happened before. We've had people who have risen to become despots in quasi-democratic systems, places like Turkey, Russia, etc. But those systems did not have long legacies of democratic procedure, democratic norms built into the system, and they didn't have the institutions. So that's why I think that Trump is a really important test case for the world, because if he, if this works, if it's viable, if he gets reelected, if you know the 2018 midterms are sort of a mild rebuke to the Republicans, it sends a message not just to sort of Trump 2.0s that are waiting in the wings in America, but also in Western Europe and other places that this is a viable strategy to play on people's fears, to be an authoritarian demagogue, and to say the system doesn't matter, the procedure doesn't matter. All that matters is that I am on your team and our political tribalism will do what you want. And that's what the founding fathers explicitly did not want to have happen. But they anticipated somebody like Trump. They just didn't anticipate that when a demagogue took office, Congress would be complicit with them. And that's why we're in such a mess, because the institutional checks and balances delivered to uh, you know, Congress on, on those pieces of parchment, 
they're just pieces of parchment unless people employ them to hold power to account, and they're not doing that right now. You no, know, we've seen a moral collapse in the Republican Party, which used to be a respectable conservative party, not that anybody, everybody in it was principled and perfect any more than they were in the Democratic Party. But they certainly, I think, the party, the Republican Party of the 80s, would have stood up to Donald Trump. And what's so disheartening now is seeing the very few people who were challenging him in some way, Lindsey Graham, just crumple sort of inexplicably. What do you think? I mean, when you look at these other regimes where and we're we're obviously most concerned about the places that were democratic and becoming more democratic, like Turkey, Russia, India, the list, the list, Venezuela, the the list goes on and on. Have we seen this pattern? Have we seen people stand up to him a little bit and then cave in? Yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the things that happens in authoritarian systems is that being a sycophant pays, right? I mean, being in the orbit of the despot is an extremely effective strategy for getting rich and getting powerful. Now, the problem here, the reason why I think this is happening in the U.S. is because the polarization that has been built into our system from decades of dysfunctional politics has made it so it is a winning strategy for a lot of Republicans to simply double down on Trump. Now, the reason I say this is that in 2016, the average margin of victory in a House race in America was 37.1% which is as competitive as elections in places like, you know, Russia. And so the reason for that is because a lot of these districts are gerrymandered and some of them are are also just the product of demographic sorting, right? So people move to rural Texas and they tend to think like other rural Texans. People move to San Francisco. They think like other San Franciscans. What that means, though, is that there's a huge number of Republicans in Congress who, if they stand up to Trump, they might have a primary challenger. If they are a sycophant for Trump, they won't and they'll win in a cakewalk. And so as a result, the political incentives for those people is clearly to become just a cheerleader for Trump. Now, the problem is... We used to have shame in this country where people would sort of think this is – But hang on a second. Let me stop you there for a second, Brian, because I, I get that that, that that political logic applies to many Republicans in many districts. But there are 30 at current count Republican House members who are not running for reelection in large part because Trump has made them – Unelectable, either because they're in swing districts, districts that, say, voted for Hillary uh, while electing a Republican congressman, or they're in California, they're in, they're in very blue states. And, you know, you studied political science. A rational choice theory says politicians do what's in their self-interest. How is supporting Trump in their self-interest? What would seem to be in their self-interest to give them a chance of re-election would be denouncing him and distancing themselves. Well, it's, I think that that's the point, though, is that there are 30 of these people, but there's also hundreds that are in the exact opposite camp, right, where it actually is politically risky to challenge Trump. So for Lindsey Graham, yeah. I get it. In South Carolina, his chances of ever getting reelected are good if he supports Trump and bad if he opposes Trump. But how about these others? Why aren't we hearing them speak up? It's in their interest. So I think the other the other unfortunate but true explanation for this is just, you know, political opportunism. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of Republicans view Trump as a vehicle. They view him as a sort of, you know, useful idiot who can help them pass legislation that they've long desired. So ideologically driven Republicans may see Trump as someone, okay, we don't want to damage the president because that damages our ability to get things done in negotiations, right? I mean, for for example, right now with the immigration bills, you know, if Trump is extremely weak, 
the Republicans are not going to get what they want out of that bill. Now, I'm, not, I'm not convinced by this part of your explanation. I think there's something else going on because I don't think it's political opportunism. These people's political careers are going to end for the time being. I think it's something more along the lines of your authoritarian personality idea and this sort of either mass delusion or tremendous peer pressure or somehow a mass psychological phenomenon where people are caving against their own interests to a would-be despot, as you call him, who is going to end their careers, destroy their party, and end up putting the Republicans in this kind of limbo that's not going to do them any good at all. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a very good explanation explaining why they're responding to authoritarian voters in the party, right, who are cheering this behavior. I think people like Lindsey Graham, are, I don't think he has an authoritarian personality. I think he genuinely believes in checks and balances, etc. But there's been a corrosion of the entire system by what I call political tribalism. And that's, I mean, it's really, really corrosive in this country, where the response to any single individual issue is, was it my guy who said it or was it the other guy who said it and that is how it's predicated with the shithole comments for example everybody's response i mean on fox news it was oh surely it's fake news but if it's not fake news it's probably uh, totally fine right and, and then all of a sudden then the trump administration denies it and they say oh uh maybe it was bad but he didn't say it right i mean everything they're just being reactive to everything and it's all about is it my team or the other team and this is where the reality show presidency that trump has brought to the white house i think is indicative of uh, you know, this complete breakdown of any sort of rational compromise for the, the bases of both parties. Now, I think it's obviously much, much worse on the Republican side. But there is political tribalism on the Democrats, too. And it's something that on the, in the long term, this is not going to be solved easily. We're not just going to simply wake up from this Trumpian nightmare and think, all right, let's compromise now. We see the world the same way because Trump is making it it's increasingly difficult for people to even inhabit the same reality in this country where they look at the same event and they the facts they believe are different uh, you know and, and that is to the you know point of what democracy is it's about compromise living in a shared society without violence i mean that's that's sort of why we have this system and i'm really worried about our ability for the future to have genuine democratic compromise. So you're very much in sync with a number of thinkers about about threats to democracy and rising authoritarianism who've been regular guests on this show, um, Yasha Monk, Timothy Snyder, and Applebaum. You're all on the same page on this, and I agree with you. Um, but an important question is, what are the danger signs we're, we're watching for? The Republicans in Congress have been that the House Republican caucus is a shithole, right? They have done they have stood up to Trump to a minimum degree. But other parts of the government have stood up to Trump in a really admirable way. The judiciary, the federal courts, elements of the bureaucracy, independent journalists, in many cases, conservative intellectuals who aren't in elected politics. So. What should we be watching right now for signs of it getting worse? So I think what's happening in in this moment that's really crucial to watch is the politicization of rule of law. In in countries that I've lived in around the world, it's a a precursor to authoritarianism, is to turn the rule of law into something where it is viewed as a purely political weapon by the regime to punish opponents and reward loyal allies, right? Now, Trump showed glimmers of this in the fact that he's called to jail his opponent repeatedly and pardoned Joe Arpaio, one of his political allies. 
But now the attacks on the FBI and the special counsel and all of this coming from the Republican Party and the Trump administration is seriously dangerous because democracy dies at the point where rule of law is seen simply as a political tool. And, and I think that is it's a clear strategy, right? I mean, I think the clear strategy here is to try to discredit the Mueller investigation before the report is produced, right? So it seems like this this guy is some political hack out to get Trump. Now, things to watch for. Is he going to pardon anyone? Is he going to pardon Michael Flynn? If he does, that's a serious breakdown of democratic norms, and it will accelerate political or the politicization of rule of law. Any attempts to sort of curb or shut down the Mueller investigation? And I think the aside from this aspect of rule of law, the other one that I really think we need to watch is is there going to be a genuine national security crisis or a terror attack, major terror attack during Trump's time in office? Because those moments, those crisis inflection points in uh, places where there is a would-be despot in power are the moments that are most dangerous. They open up the, the realm of possibilities and take out all of the political normals, throw them out the window, and all of a sudden somebody can get away with a whole host of new things. So in the book, I have four scenarios of what 2020 might look like. And one of them envisions that, you know, say there is a mass casualty attack in the U.S. and Trump is president, something like a dirty bomb going off in an American city. It's really scary. I mean, if you have somebody who's a genuinely authoritarian figure in power who has said that he wants to ban Muslims from entering the United States and floated the idea of creating a registry for Muslim Americans, you know, I mean, that person in power during one of those moments is when democracy could actually get slashed in unthinkable ways uh, in the current moment. So while he's chipping away at it on a sort of daily basis – the security stuff really changes how people accept stuff that is clearly, clearly not acceptable in our politics. So here's another possible distinction question. Real despots like Vladimir Putin are serious like a heart attack. They're, they have to preserve, hang on to power at all costs. They don't have much life expectancy beyond their tenure in office. Trump's the dilettante. He's an accidental president. If you believe Michael Wolf's book, and I believe some of it, not other parts of it, but I think he's right about this. Trump didn't really expect to be president. It was kind of a, you know, it was like a celebrity gambit. He's, he finds himself in this position. But that whole scenario that we're used to of the despot who takes power, erodes democracy, and eventually turns it into authoritarianism, Donald Trump doesn't have the discipline. He doesn't have the interest. He doesn't have the ability. He kind of just doesn't care. He wants to be back on reality TV. That's his real life. Well, I mean, I think that I agree to you in the extent that he is not a strategic thinker. Um, But, you know, I think people, when they think of despots around the world, they think of the savvy ones. The overwhelming majority of authoritarian leaders in the rest of the world, and there are, you know, dozens of them, are bumbling idiots. They they are people who are political opportunists driven by ego and narcissism. And, you know, they tend to cling on to power simply because they believe that that's where the spotlight will be. I mean, that's a clear characteristic of many authoritarians. And so I think, you know, Trump's ego driving him is still dangerous. doesn't mean that he has to be a strategic thinker in terms of, oh, I want to tear down, you know, these institutions. I don't think he's thinking about the institutions. He's thinking about tearing down the things that attack him. He's more like a banana republic dictator yeah. with a tin hat and a military Certainly. costume and well, a lot of people saluting him as he as he shouts from the balcony. Yeah. And I, I think that that, you know, you, you don't have a lot of people think, OK, Trump is not a scary authoritarian figure because he's not effective. But you don't have to be effective to be destructive. Uh, And that's what I think this first year in office has shown is that you can be a bumbling idiot and a narcissist with no strategic thinking and still do immense damage to democratic norms. And, you know, I I just shudder to think about what seven more years of this would look like. Now, does he want to stay in power? 
it's hard to say. I mean, maybe once he gets a taste of this, he will not want to leave. He certainly will not want to get destroyed in an election. I mean, I think that that chip on his shoulder from losing the popular vote is so clearly bothering him that, you know, the, the specter of getting just destroyed in a landslide in 2020 will make him think twice about running. But it'll also make him think twice about how he tries to find ways to ensure that doesn't happen. And I think that's why also I have a chapter in the book talking about changing voting procedures and trying to do voter suppression, which Trump has very clearly tried to poison the minds of the public into thinking that our elections are infiltrated by millions of illegal voters, which is just a complete lie. Um, you know, it's trying to discredit the electoral process itself. So, you know, I, I think it's always one of these things where you have this tension. You have, OK, the idiotic bumbling Trump. Let's just sort of laugh it off and think this is an aberration. I'm not there. I I really think that even though he is an idiotic, bumbling figure, I think that not taking seriously the amount of damage he can do while he's in the highest office in the country uh, is naive. And I think it ends up uh, risking the fact that we don't have a strong enough response to him because I think that the response to Trump in 2018 and uh, certainly in 2020 will dictate the future of our democracy. Bumbling fool, yet incredibly dangerous. I've been speaking to Brian Klaus. His new book is The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy. Brian, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced, as always, by Jason DeLeon. Do you follow us on Twitter? Please do if you don't. We're at Real Trumpcast. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Have a great holiday weekend, and thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.